Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I want to turn now to our sermon. If you're new with us, we're in a series this summer on the church. And we've been looking at the church through this lens of family. And this is not a lens that I've imposed. This is, this is the way that the, the Bible talks about the family of God probably more than anything else. If you look at words like adoption, sons, brother, um, father, it's this lens of family. Each one of us has families. Various roles are played within our families. And just like in biological families, there are roles that are played in the church. There are roles that are carried out by each one of us in this church family. And today I want to talk with us about one of those roles. And that role is the role of father. The role of fatherhood. It's vital. It's vital to the church. We need good fathers. So I'd ask you to stand. If you have a Bible, you can grab it. We're going to turn to two passages today. The first is 1 Corinthians 4. 14 through 17. The second is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore... I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved child. Notice again this idea of fatherhood in Paul's words. I've sent Timothy, my faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere, everywhere, in every church. And then listen to Paul describe his ministry to the church of Thessalonica. 2, 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you as you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you please guide my words and all of our thoughts this morning? We pray that you would be honored here and that you would be pleased to raise up generation after generation of faithful fathers in this church and that we would be a testament to your fatherhood to the watching world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Fatherhood, fatherhood is the core of the universe. Fatherhood is the core of the universe. Think about that. That might strike you as a bold claim to make. But it's not my claim. This is what Jesus teaches. In the very beginning of the scripture, the very first words of the Bible, how many of us know them? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But to any curious reader, to any someone who's thinking seriously about the scripture, we have to ask... What was before the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the world, earth. What, what, what was before that? Well, we are told 
You have to go a little ways, but in John 17, Jesus tells us what was before the beginning. He lays it out for us, and he says that there was glory in the beginning, and that there was love in the beginning, shared between two people, a father and a son. And the nature of that love and intimacy was deeply personal and intimate. Another place in John, John chapter 1, we're told that the son dwelt intimately in the bosom of the father before he came to dwell with us on earth. This means that before creation, before Genesis 1-1, there was fatherhood. We need to recognize that. Before God breathed and created light and darkness, space, time, matter at all, his fatherhood was there. Fatherhood is the core of the universe. Fatherhood uh, is the core of the universe, and, and the apostle Paul, in his writing, understood this reality. God's fatherhood is what he sought to imitate throughout his life and ministry. Though Paul never was married, though Paul never actually had biological children of his own, he understood how central fatherhood is, and he sought to be a father in the image of the father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. That's what the scripture says. This is a hugely significant fact. But God is not just the father. That's significant in itself. But it's not just that he is the father, but also this, that he has chosen to write his fatherhood into the world that he created. He didn't need to. But in his sovereignty, he chose to share his fatherhood with us. He has called us to reflect his fatherhood. We see this in the fact that God made man in his image. He created one man to father the world. Adam was sort of fathering the animals before he actually had sons of his own. And after that, he said, there's no helper suitable for Adam. I'm going to make woman out of Adam. And he chose a man and a woman to propagate seed and to start families as, the way, as a way to fill the earth. He could have started the world with 100,000 people, but he didn't. We're reading, we just were reading um, in Genesis as a family, um, and, you know, a question my children asked was, how, you know, who did, who did uh, Cain and Abel marry? You know? That's an odd question to be asked. I said, you know, I don't know. I, I Perhaps, probably uh, someone closely related to them. <laughs> we don't know everything about that time, but what we know is that there was a lot of children quickly because the earth is filled and we get the story of Babel right away. And then God has to deal with that problem. Immediately, God could have started the world like he did after the Tower of Babel. He could have started the world with people and languages all throughout, already pre-created, but that's not the way he chose to do it. He chose to do it at the very beginning through a man. And that man is Adam, the father of the human race. We could go on, we could talk about Abraham, and he made a covenant, the covenant with Abraham and with his seed, his descendants after him. That, would, that covenant would, would, would sort of grow over time, but it was always in the context, God's covenant promise was in the context of fatherhood to a family. And then we see Jesus sort of analogous in the New Testament, choosing the 12 apostles, they were all men, to be fathers of the church. And this church would grow to be the hope of the nation, the hope of the world, and that is 
the institution that we are a part of, the family, the body that we are a part of right now. If you doubt the importance or the truthfulness of this reality, this bold claim about fatherhood, consider fatherhood in America today. On the one hand, you have this creature not, who, is, who is worthy of more suspicion and disdain than anything else in society, and that creature is the adult male. Feminism has been at war with fatherhood, seeking to dismantle it and leave it behind, and yet they've made great strides in turning culture from embracing fatherhood to rejecting it. But on the other side, the other side, you have this father hunger, this void of fatherhood. If you have fatherhood being attacked on this side, on this side, it's as if fatherhood is, is, is on the retreat. Fatherlessness is rampant, and its wounds run deep, causing all sorts of pain and disunity and anger. And so we in America uh, have hatred of fatherhood on the one side and hunger for fatherhood on the other. The facts are obvious. And when we look out and we see all these things and we think about them, what should we understand? Well, we should understand that Satan views fatherhood as a threat. Satan isn't bothered by things that leave men in their blindness. Satan isn't bothered by things, good or bad, if it doesn't lead them to the Heavenly Father. If people are happy with something, but it's not changing the course that they're on, he doesn't bother them. But he's upset about fatherhood, and he seeks to attack it. It's a threat. He's no fool. We see him doing his best to kill and destroy fatherhood. And it should reiterate to us how important fatherhood is. Satan doesn't waste his time on marginal gains. He doesn't. Fatherhood is the core of the universe, and God has written fatherhood into the world. And, and, the church, we, you and I, need fathers. In our passage from 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is correcting a number of errors and working to rebuke specific sins that were alive and well in the hearts and lives of the people and the church of Corinth. If you've read that book, you know that Paul is sort of taking them to task systematically throughout for for various things. Factions, disunity, sexual perversion, pride. And in the verses that we read already, I just want to read a couple uh, again. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Though he's disapproving of the way that they're acting, he doesn't cast them out. He's not writing them off or just straight condemning them. He's rather imploring them as his beloved children. He loves them as his children. This, isn't a pers- this is not an impersonal jab from a disconnected party. It's a plea from someone, a man, who feels responsible for these people. A few weeks ago, I was climbing and hiking with my wife, and um, we had no children with us. And there were certain portions of those hikes that were fairly treacherous, certain sections that, I mean, there's no stanchions on these, these babies. I mean, you could, it's, it's like the cliffs of Dover. You know, you could, two steps, and you're falling 100 feet straight down onto rock. And there's absolutely no picket fence. There's, there's no safety mechanism anywhere except on the portions that get about to be a foot or two feet wide that you have to walk along on a, on a, a cliff, there is a little bit of rope hanging from the rock so you can pull yourself across. 
But that's the level of safety on these hikes. They were dangerous. Did it bother us? A little bit, but did we still walk on them? Absolutely. Now listen to me, I'll tell you this. I've got five kids. If my kids were with us on that hike, you better believe I would have been going about it a different way. And it would be the opposite way. We'd be hiking out. Why? Why? Because I love my children. Because I feel responsible for their well-being. And they don't have the, 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 the range of strength and motion and maybe depth perception that Aaliyah and I have. They're a little more careless at this stage in life. And because of that, as a responsible father, I'm not going to allow them to traverse that trail that I did with relatively little worry or concern. On my end, Aaliyah was a little bit more. Nathan, stop taking photos over the ledge. But, you know, that... that my kids, if they were there, I'd approach the whole thing differently because I feel responsible for, I don't feel, I am responsible for their health and safety and well-being, for their care, for their protection. And so it causes, when I have that responsibility on my shoulders, I act differently. This is Paul. This is Paul with the church of Corinth. He's saying, guys, I'm writing to you, employing you as my children, Come away from the danger. You hear this in his voice. In verse 15, he continues to make an interesting statement. He says, you have countless tutors in Christ. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. That's kind of an interesting statement to make. What's he mean? Why does he say that they have countless tutors? Some translations say 10,000 tutors, but no fathers. Why the distinction? What's he getting at? Well, Paul is establishing himself as their father in comparison to the many false apostles whom the Corinthians had began to show all their deference. Paul was almost nothing in their sight, which is why he's having to write them again. They may say, oh, I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, but what's the fruit of their life? Well, the fruit of their life is disunity, sexual perversion, pride, taking each other to court by secular judges, all sorts of things. And so it's clear, if they claim Paul as father, it's in words alone. There's no heart attached to it. And Paul doesn't really care about words. Because God doesn't care about words, he cares about our heart. And so he says, you have lots of tutors, but you have no fathers. And he's claiming that he is their father. He's reminding them, very different is the love of a father. Very different a father's anxiety. Very different a father's attachment than that of a tutor. Then he exhorts them in verse 16 to imitate him. And of course... He isn't only talking about his fatherhood here. He's not just saying, be a father as I'm a father. He's, going, he's saying more than that. But it certainly includes this charge, reminding them that he's their father. He's caring for them as children. And he says, come on, follow after me. Imitate me. Brothers, we should hear, in Paul's words, a call to imitate his fatherhood in the church. Not hypothetically, but actually. Not next year or in five years, but today. Also, take notice that in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says this, You are my witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Paul doesn't say I. He says we. Who's the we referring to? Well, we didn't read it, but in the very beginning of that book to the Thessalonians, he begins by saying, from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. 
And there's a few little significant things I would just want to point out about this fact. This teaches us that the church ought to have men, plural, loving and guiding and exhorting and tending to it as fathers. It's not just one. Paul hasn't taken that seat and claimed it so that no one else can. He doesn't have this special status of the only father of the church. He is a father towards these church. He views them as his children, and there are others that do the same. It also shows us that apparently Paul has adopted his son Timothy, a man significantly younger than himself, and trained him in how to be a father to the church. So this is something that should be modeled and taught and learned. And remember, Timothy is in that list. You don't have to be over 50 or 60 years old to start viewing yourself in this way or to start engaging in this sort of work. The church is a family that needs fathers. And at this point, I want to particularly challenge those of you that are men in two directions. We're going to talk to the mothers next week, but right now I want to talk to the men. First, every single one of us needs men in our lives that are fathers to us. Every single one of us. Men to whom you're willing to bear your soul and confess your sins to. Men to whom you go to for advice and encouragement when life is difficult. When you're trying to hold fast to the truth. But it's confusing. Because how many of us know it can be confusing? Life can be confusing, even when we're striving to do what's right. And sometimes even more so when we're trying to do what's right. Or when marriage is tough. Or when your children are rebellious. Or when you're being slandered at work. Or when tragedy tears at your lives. We all need this. God knows you need this, and he has provided this wonderful thing called the church. And he has endowed the church with spiritual fathers to guide and direct us, to weep with us, and to rejoice with us. Men, is there someone that you look to as a spiritual father today? Is there someone that comes to your mind right now? Someone who's further down the road of faith and has already passed the pitfalls that you haven't reached yet. I've talked with a number of guys over the years, and one thing is common um, in these stories that I've heard that include fairly desperate situations. They get into a situation and it's really tough. And as I've talked with many different guys, many different ages, inside and outside of the church, there is one thing that, 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 that binds them all. They have a common tie, and that is that they're almost, they always say to me that they're probably the most spiritually mature person that they know. I say, who's, who's out in front? I mean, you're going through this. Who are you going to? Well, I've got some buddies. Well, who are they? Well, they're, you know, they're kind of guys that I'm trying to pull up. And so they've got no one out in front of them to serve as a, as a guide, as a light post to them as they walk. And they, and they fall because they don't have anybody out in front, in part because they don't have anybody that's fathering them through those sort of situations. Why might we not embrace fatherhood? Some of you think, man, I don't, I don't know. I know some of the guys, but I, I don't really have that kind of relationship with them. Why might we not embrace fathers in the church? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Maybe it's the simple fact that as men, we are generally stubborn, and we don't want to ask for advice. How many of you love asking for advice? No one. No one loves asking for advice. I don't know a single guy that 
just dying to stop on a street and ask somebody for directions. I've never seen that. We, we generally think we're fine. Or when we're not fine, we don't like to admit it. Or maybe we don't want to be challenged or disagreed with. Maybe we're afraid of vulnerability. The nature of Paul's relationship with the church is much deeper than that of a fishing buddy or a workout partner. That's not to say that we, we can't have a vulnerable relationship with a fishing buddy or, or that we can't uh, look to a workout partner who co- is also a father to us in some way. But what I am saying is that vulnerability comes hard to men. True vulnerability comes hard to us all. Our natural bent is to lean away from being vulnerable. We all know what it's like to keep relationships and conversations or both to surface rather level rather than opening up because we don't like vulnerability. And yet, and yet, I want to make a point. The biblical pattern of John 14 is this. Jesus says, I know the sheep and what follows after the sheep know me. Knowledge, vulnerability. That's Jesus right there. Jesus isn't content to just know the sheep. He knows us already. He said, I know the sheep and the sheep know me. Vulnerability. Knowledge isn't only one direction with Jesus. They know him. They know his smell. They know the sound of his voice. They know what he loves. Are you willing to share that? Whatever the case may be, every one of us needs spiritual fathers to love, to challenge, encourage, warn, pray for, and serve as guideposts for us as we seek to run the race that's been set before us. So I want to ask you again, who's your spiritual father? Is there anyone in your life that you would default your opinion to? Think about that. Is there anyone? Pick a topic that you care about. Is there anyone in your life who you would submit your opinion to fairly quickly just based off how much respect you have for them as somebody who serves as a father to you? Is there anyone in your life that you assume is wiser and knows more? If not, you need to seek out a father. We all need fathers. That's the first direction that I want to challenge us in. That's this direction over here. Now I want to kind of pivot and turn, and I want to challenge us in this direction. If the church is a family that needs fathers, are you seeking to be a father? Are you seeking to be a father? Is this an aspiration or a goal? Is it something that you think about? Is it something that you're trying to pursue in any way? I bet if I ask you, how many of you think fatherhood's important in the church? All your hands would go up. And I bet I ask you, if you wanted to be a father, that again, all or most of our hands would go up. But if I ask you, how are you pursuing this? Show me how you're trying to work towards this, 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 this role. There'd be a lot less hands in the air. It's like New Year's resolutions. We all have things in our life that we know are important. They're good to seek to achieve, to pursue. And yet most of them aren't easy. Typically they're difficult, which is why we've left them undone. It's always easier to affirm in our minds than to pursue with our lives. But this morning, I want to ask you, are you seeking to be a father? 
I know we all agree in theory with much of what's been said, but agreeing with and acting on are completely different things. And if we live our lives agreeing but never acting, we're going to live fruitless lives. We must agree with truth, and we must build on the foundation of truth. We must act. It's not just mental. It's doing. Just like with our resolutions, there are things, though, that can keep us back. Even if I say, Nathan, I'm going to do it. Today, I'm going to set out on this course. There are things that will seek to hold you back from keeping Keep, things that will keep you from pursuing that which you know is right and good. And I do want to spend a little time this morning identifying some of the holdups. That's what I've called this section of the sermon, holdups. The things that keep us from pursuing this work, this role as father in the church. So first, the first holdup. Some of us think that to be a father in the church, you need a platform or you need a title. You need somebody to, to, to give you a badge or a name tag or a desk plaque, and you're not going to engage in the work until you get the, the desk plaque and it's made official. That's not true. Leadership is not found in a title or a position. Men, you need to recognize that right now. It's often reflected by a title or a position. It's often recognized by a title or a position. Somebody seeing what you're doing and saying, we need that we got to have that. I want to reward that. I want to support that. I want to encourage that. But, but no, leadership is not found in a title or a position. You don't need to be an elder. You don't need to be a deacon. You don't need to be a small group leader to pursue being a father in the church. In fact, if you think that the title is the goal, then you've got the wrong goal. If that's what you're after, you're, compl- you're on a different track. You don't know you don't know anything about fatherhood, actually. If it's the title that you're going after, it's not the title. The goal is to love. The goal is to care for the flock in a way that honors God and builds up his church. I've been so encouraged this, this past year. I've, I've looked at and I've seen a number of you who don't have any titles just doing this work. You've been doing it quietly. You've been doing it faithfully. You've been doing it for your friends. You've been doing it for your friends' children. You've been doing it in any way you can because you love the Lord and you love this church. And it's so encouraging to me to see this work started at various levels, various areas of church life, and at various ages. It, it is so encouraging to me. And yet we can't stop. So don't stop. And yet those handful of guys that I've taken notice of and I appreciate aren't enough. We need, this is something we're all in together. Second, so first, we, need, we think we need a title or a platform. Second, hold up, some of us aren't going to pursue fatherhood because we're focused on ourselves. That's, that's a truth. We're not going to pursue fatherhood because we're focused on ourselves. If there's one thing that I know about fatherhood, it's that fatherhood is about other people. It's not about me. My oldest son, Micaiah, is almost 10. And I remember we were having this really, he was the first grandchild in our family, and we were having this really celebratory moment in the hospital. I think that the way it worked, I think that my dad took 5,000 photos that day. And then my fifth child, there was like three photos from a cell phone that I tried to round up after he was born. But that first child, like 5,000, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was ecstatic. It was, it was really exciting. 
I remember that time in that hospital room, taking hands, holding the newborn child. And at a certain point, there was a little pause in the conversation, and my dad looked up and said, well, Nathan, your life's over now. It's no longer about you. Oh, Cheryl, we need to get going. At the time, I was 21, so hearing that my life was over felt a little daunting, felt a little heavy-handed. But 10 years later, and four kids more, I understand what he's saying. My life, my life is incredibly happy. If you know me, I hope you can see that. Uh, but it isn't about me in the way that it once was. And, and here's the thing. It's not supposed to be about me. If you think that life that God's just brought you into isn't going to be happy, you don't realize how he wants your life to be. This is the work I was made for. This is the work that you were made for. Fatherhood is about being responsible for others. And again, remember that Paul had no biological children. You can live this way without children. That's what I want you to hear. Men, if if you don't have children yet or have not been able to have children, don't hear my illustration as an excuse to not try. Paul had no children of his own, and yet he's calling us to this work. You can pursue responsibility for others without an invitation. It starts with being focused on others. But if we're preoccupied with ourselves, with our own wants, and needs, and goals, and aspirations. If that's the only thing that we're looking at, that's got our attention, we're never going to get there. Fathers, fatherhood is about dying to yourself for the good of those around you. So that's the second thing. First thing is we think we need a title. Second thing is that can hold us up is we're focused on ourselves. Third, I think that some of us believe the lie that the father roles are already filled that they're all accounted for, that there's really no use in pursuing it because there's not really a need. I don't want to waste my time. So I'll let them do it. I'm happy over here. We look out and we see leaders among us and we think, there isn't a need for me. Or, Or something else, they're better suited. They have better gifting. They're better equipped. And this is a holdup I really want to dismantle today. We have been blessed with many, many strong godly father figures in this church, and I praise God for them, and I praise God that they're still with us, but, but, I think a temptation for us is to use them, whether we verbalize it or not, as an excuse to coast, rather than to seek to emulate them. We say, oh, well, we've already got those boxes checked, and so I, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here, and I'll let them do their thing, right? If there's a hard question that comes along, I'll just default to them because that's, that's their role. That's not the way that we should approach life in the church as fathers. Men, we must emulate those that we look to as fathers. The men you most look up to and respect will not be around forever. That's, I'm not trying to be harsh or, or, or now I'm the Debbie Downer, but that's a reality of life. There's appointed once for man to die. And if you always are looking way out ahead of you and saying, oh, well, they've got it, they've got it, they've got it. When they don't have it anymore, when God calls them to glory, your family is going to be in a bad spot. Can you imagine Elisha coasting, being disinterested, not really paying attention or being half-hearted in the work he was called to do alongside of Elijah? Can you imagine Elisha saying, I will do all this stuff that day when Elijah is taken away into the clouds on a flaming chariot of fire? 
Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Do your comparisons keep you back from pursuing fatherhood in the church? Do you think that you're not gifted enough? Or do you value someone else's gifts more than you value the gifts that you've been given? If we go back five weeks, we talked about the fact that we're a body. We all function differently. We all play different parts, but we're all absolutely necessary. We're all needed. Are you living like the servant who only got one talent? So you're looking and you're saying, you know, that guy had three. I'm not going to, he invested it, he did something. I'm not going to do that. I only got one. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to bury it. Jesus says something about that guy. You should read it. Do you remember the story of Jethro's advice to Moses? The Old Testament. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. And they're wandering around in the desert. And Moses at this point is trying to wrangle hundreds of thousands, perhaps million or more people. And it's not working out real well for him. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes and gives Moses this advice. He says, the thing that you're, not, you're, you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out yourself and the people who are with you. Jethro, being a good father-in-law to Moses and a good father-in-law to the people of Israel, seeing the needs and speaking to them. He says, select out of all the people able men that fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain, and you should place them as leaders over thousands and hundreds, and fifties, and tens. That's Jethro's advice to Moses. You can't lead these people all by yourself. You can't judge every dispute. Here's what you got to do. Go out and find men that fear God, able men, and set them over thousands, and hundreds, and fifties, and tens. And so he did this. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. God's been working through fathers forever. This is the central idea that I'm calling us to think about this morning. The reality is, this is the truth, that not all of us have been given the same gifts. Not all of us have the same capacity for fathering the same number of people to the very same degree. We do play different parts. There were those that led a thousand, and there were those that led ten. That's not the point. The point is that men, you employ yourself in the work of fathering those that are around you, whether it is the thousand or the ten. Not everyone is called to the same station, but we are all called to pursue this work. And you've already promised to do it. You've all promised to do it. And you're sitting here thinking, when did you, I ever promise you that I would do it? I'll tell you, every time we baptize a child here in this church is a good reminder of our commitment to father the church. Every time we bring children up here and we baptize them, there are vows. Vows. They matter. We stand and we affirm the vows. We say yes to what? Helping, assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of their children. And so it might be a thousand for some of you and it might be ten for others of you. And there's no, there's, no, there's no ill comparison there. That is God and how he has gifted different people to do different things. But my question is, are you doing it? Are you doing it? Don't be content to coast because you think that there are others out there that could do it better. That is not the life of faith. That's not the way that giant slayers act. When they see the need, they throw themselves into the fray. They might not be able to handle 
the king's armor. They may not be able to wield the king's sword or the, or the shield, but, he's a, but, but they may be able to go out and get the five smooth stones from the brook. God's looking for men whose hearts are fully committed to him so that he can strongly support you in the work you're doing, whether it's a thousand, whether it's ten. He's called us into this work, and he says, I will be with you. I will support you. Are you doing it? Are you that man? So we need to look to spiritual fathers. We need to pursue being spiritual fathers. We need to watch out for some of these hang-ups that can creep into our minds and keep us paralyzed. And you say, okay, I want to I be that man. You recognize that the church is a family that needs fathers, and you want to pursue being one in the church. But how? Where do you start? Maybe you're like Timothy, young, without a, a good father figure in his life. What's this look like? How do you approach this in an appropriate way? I want to end with a few things to start you in the right direction. First and foremost, remember the type of person that Moses looked for when he found judges. We didn't read it. I read it to you. We didn't look at it together. I want to reread just a bit. Able men, able men who fear God... Men of truth who hate dishonest gain. You won't be a good father if you're a Pharisee. Jesus said, do as they say, but not as they do, referencing the Pharisees. Some of the worst family situations I've ever seen are a father who says all the right things and doesn't do any of them. Some of the most tragic situations in the home I've ever encountered are because the father is very loud and vocal about what's right, and yet his own life testifies the opposite direction. It's tragic. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't say the right things and not act accordingly. The greatest need for you as a father is your own personal holiness. Fear God. Obey him. Don't be proud and stiff-necked. Paired with this, is something that goes right along with it. You must be men of truth. Moses found men who feared the Lord, men of truth. You must pursue an ever-growing knowledge and love for the Bible. If you're going to be a good father, you have to know the Bible. You won't be able to mirror the fatherhood of God accurately if you don't see God for who he is. And he's revealed himself in the scripture. If you're not a student of the word, you must become one. Read through the Bible every year. Have excitement when you arrive back in Genesis. Have a heart that is full of expectation or praying for expectation, for new insights as you go through it. Pray to God that he'll give you deep convictions about his truth. And men, listen, as you study the word of God, as you think about fatherhood, make sure that you have convictions that your wife doesn't develop first. All right? Second, choose your fathers well. Find men that are wiser and more mature in their faith and watch them. Imitate them. Study them. No one's above doing that. That's how we all grow. Be vulnerable with them. Be humble when you're challenged. Learn and grow with them. Respect, and I'll say this, um, respect and honor the fathers that God has clearly chosen for you. 
child's born into a family, he doesn't have the luxury of saying, you know, I want Jimmy's dad down the street. He lets me stay up late watching Nickelodeon all night. That's not the way family works. God brings children into families with fathers and mothers. And the church has this as well. So respect and honor the fathers that God has clearly chosen for you, elders like Paul and Timothy. Third, if you have children, be a good father to them. Discipline your children by faith. Give them God's yes and God's no. Read the Bible every day with your kids. Pray for your children. Pray with your children. And then expand that list and pray for your friends and your friends' children. Talk with your kids. Laugh with your kids. Be interested in them. Do fun things with them. Choose to do things that give them joy like God our Father says, I want to give you joy. Engage with your children and then engage with your children's friends. Ask them questions. Be interested in their life. It's, it's a growing thing. You know how to do it in your family. Expand your household. Expand your family. Start being concerned and start owning. Remember that story about the, the trip on the hike and how because if I had my children with me, I'd be concerned. Start being concerned about your kids, but then start growing it. Just start growing that, that itch in your heart and in your mind. Be concerned for your, 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 the friends of your children and for your friends and for the church with holy, righteous concern, love for God, love for the family. That, that's, really, that's really the way it works. Honestly, being a good father in the church is just an extension of being a good father in your home. Your leadership will never rise higher outside your home than it does inside. And you may be fooling some people right now. There are those of you that are fooling people. Because you have a good, strong game out here, but inside, the house is a mess. But the truth and time walk hand in hand. The high watermark for your leadership starts in the home. There's nothing mystical about being a father in the church. That's what I want you to hear. There's no, there's no secret, uh, secret ceremonies. There's no finger pricks like they do in the Freemason Society. None of that garbage. There's nothing mystical about it. It's, it's work. It's concern. It's love for the Lord and love for his people. A love for his people. A selfless love. It requires you to die. Are you willing to do that? And finally, remember, for those of you that are engaging in this work right now, for those of you that will engage in this work, you know, as we seek to do this, as we seek to Father, we're going to fail along the way. And I say that not to end on a down note, because, but, but to warn us, because we can't allow the, the failures and the sins that will happen to paralyze us and to stop us from trying to lead. We will fail. I fail. You will fail. And sometimes it'll be messy. Sometimes other people will see it. Sometimes they won't. But whenever those things happen, we can't be paralyzed. We can't allow ourselves to just turn to stone, because then it's another failure after it. And the second failure is much greater than the first. That's what Satan wants. He wants all of us to be stone statues because of our sins. Unable to move. Unable to usher a, a, a word of concern. Or, or, or cry with someone. A stone statue can't cry with other people. That's what Satan wants of us. And we can't, we can't be that. We cannot allow our sins to paralyze us. We still have the law of sin and death within us. Romans 7 teaches us this. And this means that even our best work, even when you feel like, I, did, I was a father today, it's going to be tainted with sins and failures. It will be. So as fathers, our hope is not ultimately in the, in the fact that we're trying to be good fathers. Our, our hope 
is that in the midst of sin, God will add his blessing, his mercy, his grace toward the people that we love, our sons and daughters, other sons, this church. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. God is our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. When we are weak, he is strong, and he is glorified by working through our weaknesses. More specifically, relating to our children, he has promised that he will guide, he will guide them, and he will be a God to them. We all fail, but when we do, we must fail pointing to Jesus and as our, pointing to Jesus as our hope and our power. It's not in ourselves. It's in Christ. Fatherhood is at the core of the universe. God has written it into the world. He has called you as men into it. And I want to ask, are you going to be a father to Christ's church? Are you going to be a father to this family? And I hope you will, because it's a glorious, glorious calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it convicts us and challenges us and calls us. We hear your love in its words. We hear your fatherly affection and discipline in the words of Scripture, and we pray that we as men would rise to it and that we would be willing to carry uh, the light of Christ in this world as fathers. Father, I pray that you would endow this congregation specifically with great Father for generation after generation. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.